This podcast is brought to you by United Bank, the community bank of the nation's capital. This is Let's Have a Drink, a podcast from BizNow Media, where we have a drink with the people who are shaping commercial real estate. I'm Ethan Rothstein, BizNow's East Coast editor. This week, we have a special bonus episode for you, a conversation with Notel CEO and co-founder Amol Sarva. Amol founded Notel in 2016, which earlier this year raised $400 million at a $1 billion valuation. The flexible office provider has 250 locations in 16 cities around the world and leases a total of 4 million square feet. It hasn't officially announced its launch in D.C. yet, but it's already here. It leases 17,000 square feet in the market, according to its website. In this previously recorded episode, Amal sat down with BizNow's New York reporter and Let's Have a Drink executive producer, Miriam Hall. They chatted over kombucha at Gather, a Notel location in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood, open to any Notel member. Thanks for having a drink with us. Delicious kombucha, no less. (laughs) Before Notel, Amal didn't have any experience in commercial real estate. He founded Virgin Mobile USA nearly 20 years ago now, and then Peak, which was an early smartphone in 2007. But his first startup experience was as an undergraduate at Columbia University in the 90s. I think the internet was already kind of a popular thing with people in high school age, college age at that time. People had like AOL, and they would chat on it the way perhaps now you know, a high school student might be using Snapchat or Instagram stories or something. I started teaching myself how to do some stuff. Um, and the things that we did when I was in college were not massively ambitious. They were just, you know, like I made a website for the religion department. Uh, me and some friends, we made a website for a pizza store, a Domino's Pizza on 103rd Street. And the guy was like, can you make it so people can order pizza off of this web page? And we were like, yeah, I think so. And we figured out some way. And I think we made the first website for ordering pizza in yeah. the world for Domino's <laughs> Pizza, which is like, that was kind of neat. Uh, we made CD-ROMs. People used to do that then. So yeah. And then we made a... Uh, we made like a Yelp type site. It was called Dining Guide. But we were college students and it was like 1995 and the whole thing was very amateur. And we didn't really have anybody to point us in the right direction of how to do it as a real sort of ambitious venture. Interesting, because you went and did your PhD in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like, why not, you know, MBA or in business? Or was it because you didn't have someone to say, hey, you could no, actually no, no. do something on this? Well, the MBA thing is not. Yeah would not have been useful to, it still is not useful to anyone. I would not encourage any okay. listener of this thing to get an MBA in any topic for any reason. But you know what I mean, like, why do you not pursue business? Well, I was thinking about... Because you clearly things. liked making stuff. I was thinking about two things. So when I was finishing um, undergrad, I was thinking either I'll do the dominant thing that everybody else who is a high-achieving, nerdy student would do, or um, maybe I'll do this thing which is a less dominant but even more nerdy thing. Those are my two options. So high-achieving dominant strategy was go to Wall Street. Everybody used to go to Wall Street then. And so I interviewed at all these banks and I got offers from all these fancy places and I was like, cool. One of them even, I even agreed to join. And I got like, you know, they sent me a signing bonus and stuff and I kept it in my drawer and I didn't do anything with it as I waited because I had also applied to PhD programs. That was the nerdy, unpopular thing. Which bank was it? Uh, A bunch of them. Well, they got mad at me. It's called Lazard Fair. It was like a super fancy, very elite little clubby kind of bank and um, I had chosen them because they were a bit more esoteric choice instead of like the Morgan Stanley Goldman Sachs type places and I was one of like seven or eight people that I had hired that year and I have the thing in my little drawer and meanwhile I was waiting for the mail to come because I had also at the you know, gentle prodding of some of my professors 
applied to some PhD programs and then I get the letter from this place and I'm like, oh my God, I gotta do it. So you decided, you, you ditched the bank. Yeah, and I actually gave them the money back. I, I should have kept it. And I went instead to, to Stanford to do my like philosophy PhD. I, I, genu I genuinely was excited that I was gonna get to just work on philosophy for years. So, so what was the end game idea? Were you gonna like become a professor? I sort of had the casual thought, yeah, that maybe. I wasn't super committed to that as the only outcome. Within a month, I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm definitely not gonna become a professor. And it was an awesome experience, it was really good. I learned about teaching, I learned about philosophy, and in my spare time, and part of the reason why I even went to Palo Alto at all, is to just be closer to the headquarters of startups. So your first big company was Virgin Mobile. Yeah. And then you created Peak, which was, I guess, like a kind of a cheaper version of the BlackBerry. Is that how you would describe yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, Virgin Mobile was a cheap cell phone. Peak was a cheap smartphone. Virgin Mobile was a cell phone in the days that most people didn't have them, mobile phones. In the year 2000 when we started Virgin Mobile, almost half of adults had mobile phones. Mm -hmm. And no young people did. Under age 18, almost no one had them. And so we thought, in the future, everyone will have a cell phone. What should we do? Let's make one that you can buy without having to sign a long-term contract. You can buy it in a store. And, and that turned out to be an okay idea. It was just copied from other markets. People had already been doing it in Europe in certain ways, and we modified it a bit, and we convinced Virgin to, to back it and sprint. So you, you launched Peak in September 2008, which yeah. I believe is when... Notable, yeah. Yeah, like, so what was that like? It was a memorable um, occasion. Uh, the day that we launched, uh, September 12th, 2008, was the day that we had this like amazing exclusive debut piece in the Times and we're on CNBC and we're just everywhere. You're feeling and great, basically. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like tuning in to watch us on CNBC and they're like showing the product and this crawler going across the bottom of the screen is like, world ends, world ends, world ends, <laughs> no. run for hills. <laughs> you know, Lehman Brothers had, had just been, um, you know, like they had failed. The heads of all the governments were retiring into these ministries to plan out what to do. It was a total disaster. So what happened? Like, how did you ride through that? Well. Did you, did you just grip on and say, cause no one kind of knew what that was like back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the, the, the sort of mythology of startups is that it's going to be really hard and weird stuff's going to happen. And the mythology sometimes involves never give up, never give in, never ever surrender, like all this just like march, march, march. And so you take, you know, if you start with that in mind, and often entrepreneurs do, uh, the opposite advice, which you also always hear, pivot, change, move, roll with punches, you know, mm. it's, it's hard to like decipher the right strategy to give an occasion and, and here we had just launched it was it was very difficult to emotionally and organizationally come to the conclusion that actually we should just abandon everything we had done pull up the ladders and just like sail to the next port it's yeah. like we what we probably should have done in retrospect the most cold-blooded thing to have done would have been fire everybody stop supporting the product just cancel it we might have spent you know seven million dollars or something to have gotten to that point well maybe we still had five million in the bank we should have just stopped and quote unquote pivoted and done some completely radical kind of hibernation mode while we wait for a better window to come out going through something like that how much do you think that impacts how you are now as say like a founder and as a ceo oh yeah that enlivened me to something that many founders never think about at all which is, is the macro environment so the macro economy the macro environment you never hear startups talk about it. They, they sort of assume 
that their new technology or their product or the way their customers are using this thing is, is such a powerful force that the interest rates or the price of oil couldn't possibly have anything to do with their lovely new business. In 2012, Indian internet company Bharti SoftBank bought Peak. Amol then co-founded an app called Notable, which led to Notel. You're very big on the fact that it, you're not a co-working company, though. Yeah. Can you break it down? Like, what is... Well, I mean, co-working, if you walk around co-working and you just count in every room that you see how many people are in the room, and this is all the way back in 2015 in my first observations on this, I went to a few dozen co-working places and I just took a look. 80% of the people I saw were people that were working in these teams of less than 10. And a small percentage, 15 to 20%, were in teams that were like 20. I saw a couple teams of 40. And then I just like looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics for the average size of an organization. Talked on Google. No big deal. I'm just like average company size. <laughs> enter. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, people work in large companies. Overwhelmingly. And I, and I so I'm surprised by that. And I'm like, okay, no, no. But the trend surely is towards smaller companies, right? So I look into this a little bit. Actually, no, the, the biggest companies in the world are way bigger today than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago because technology and globalization has been making them bigger, even in startup land. So the economy is increasingly concentrated with people working in giant companies, and yet these people are building a business, these co-working people that's designed for like the two-person dog-walking outfit. So I'm looking at that, and I'm like, these guys are totally going in the opposite direction of where this business is pointed. Because I know that you also like invest in quite a lot of companies. What have you invested in, like 70 companies in the past few years? Yeah, a bunch, yeah. So how do you figure out where, what is a valuable use of your time and money and resources? My basic way of working is more broad than it is deep. I find that making lots of connections between lots of different little bits and pieces and problems and topics makes my strategy on the other ones better. I have this like this fox and the fox and the hedgehog speech that I like to give when people are asking about it, and there are these two big styles of working that I've seen over time. And there's this phrase from some some ancient Greek poet, the fox and the hedgehog, and I think it's a really nice way to describe it. I'm definitely much more of a fox than a hedgehog. The hedgehog is something that knows one big thing, and the fox knows many small things. And when I realized that about myself, I really embraced it, and it's been super productive for me. You start companies though that have tanked in the past, right? But yeah, they failed. Lots, yeah. So. Like, how do you figure out, how do you pull back? In general, on, it's probably true, like, on every topic, but certainly in, in startup land, uh, it's complicated. Uh, there's lots of advice. And for any type of advice or any recipe you get, the opposite is also there. For me, the process that makes it easy is because I have always lots of interest and lots of things that are on the boil, the ones that are just working really well, it's just easy to keep pushing those. Every, every ounce of effort offered there produces more outcome. And then on something that isn't working, you keep pushing, pushing, nothing's happening. And after a while you find, well, I guess I'm going to have to shelve this thing. I guess I'm going to have to leave it alone. I'm going to have to move on. And if you're only working on one thing and you've really committed tons of emotional energy to it and uh, the declaration of defeat is going to be this huge, big milestone, you've set yourself up to, to be blocked on it, you know? And I meet entrepreneurs like this from time to time. I mean, it's, it's rough to, to meet someone where what they really should do is just shut it down. It's painful. So it's supposed to be a slog, but it's supposed to be a slog that has some returns as you're doing it. One of my basic precepts on this is if you're not making progress, then you're dead. Like, it, you have to be moving. And you don't have to wait until the end to find out if you're dead. It's like the beginning. If you're not making progress at the beginning, then it's just as good as having spent five years on it. 
Is that kind of what happened here, where you it kind of flowed along relatively, not easily, but things kind of moved with Notel? Yeah, I mean, I think part of our thought process on Notel and, and what makes it, uh, what helps us compare so favorably to the other guys, let's say. I mean, the biggest one. In, in half the time, we got to the first big million square foot milestone. We did it with like a 30th of the money and whatever, like so many things. And that process is going to continue. We're going to carry on doing it much faster than them and everybody else. And in, in some amount of time as that, as that continues, people are going to be like, wow, they've built this towering, you know, um, empire and it happened overnight. They won't, they won't have been here like you and me are here now or a year ago or a year before that. What makes United Bank the community bank of the nation's capital? United Bank puts their customers and communities first. That means listening before developing solutions and aligning their approach with your goals. Combine that with extensive local knowledge and a focus on personal relationships, and it's no wonder Washingtonians choose United Bank. Bankwithunited.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. I know you've made a concerted effort to hire more women and introduce more women into management. How did you do that? How did we actually do it or yeah, how did how we did decide you, to do it? No, I, I mean, I know why. You how we actually did it. did it was very difficult. And um, and uh, it's starting to actually work quite well. The, the first year, well, so first of all, I'm male and my co-founder is male. So we started off. So 100%. Imbalanced yeah. <laughs> from a gender perspective. <laughs> and the first few people I hired and invited into our team, like the early key people, oh, my old friend, this other person I knew, whatever. Turns out to be a bunch of guys. So the first year, which was 2016, we're building the company, and we sort of have this sort of informal, like, hey guys, let's not make this go the way it always has in the past. Let's try to look carefully and find uh, people from a wide variety of backgrounds and involve them in the company. Let's give people some opportunities. Shallow statement, actually. No matter how often you say that, it won't do much. So at the end of the first year, uh, we look back and we see we've accomplished nothing. All of the top management of our small company of 25 people, the five or six of them are all now. Like, this is annoying. There were one or two people of other types of diversity, which was kind of good, you know, different racial and socioeconomic diversity, but all men. I'm like, okay, colleagues, we're about to hire a um, head of HR, we have a people leader here. Let's get help from this person and they are gonna help us um, really get smart about the types of programs, policies, things that we need to better attract women to the company because we have failed to do it so far. And we did a lot of things. Actually, I think we did every single thing I've ever heard anyone suggest that you do in order to achieve diversity. So then we're at the end of, of 2017. It's actually January 15th, 2018, looking back on the year prior. We had hired two relatively senior women and they had both left within the first six or eight months. There were none again. And the, the top management had grown to about 10 or 12 people. And I'm like... 10 or 12 men at that stage. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, dudes, what is wrong with you guys? Like, why are we so bad at this? What are we doing wrong? And I noticed something really surprising. I had done a, some kind of survey or whatever, and I'd gotten some data about my network. So my personal network was 80% male, according to this like survey that had pinged thousands of people that I know. It was massively imbalanced. And I'm like, holy cow, this is it. This is something no one ever talks about. Being male and conducting myself, I guess, the way I do, I happen to know mostly men. And if I rely on my network to meet more people, 
these men also know mostly men. My network is getting more and more male over time. So this was one of the first things that I that caught my attention and I thought, aha, so here's what's happening. People are not, I'm not working on a fundamental level on the people that I know. I'm not trying to meet senior women in order to balance my network. I'm not asking them for referrals to other ones. I'm not reaching out to women affirmatively and saying, hey, I would like to meet you because sometimes women are a bit less forward. I get an email every few days from some dude who's like, hey, I'm like so good. I can save your company. Let me come work for you. I have never gotten an email like that from a woman. So I was seeing my network go in the wrong direction and I decided to really work on that. So that's the first big thing mm -hmm. I've been working. So I changed my whole approach. I have like one lunch every month where I've spent the whole month like trying to meet new women to invite to the lunch. I may not know them that well and I explain why I want to invite them and, and it's like a little interest group thingy and I've been meeting tons of spectacular women leaders that way. There's a series of, of dinners that a couple of women friends have been organizing and they're all CFOs and COOs and stuff like that. I've been going along with that. And I've been meeting amazing senior women and some of them have ended up magically at an hotel. And the second big thing is on every open position that we had that was in my purview uh, running the company, so like in the top 10 or 15 roles in the company, um, I instead of looking for one woman candidate in the pipelining or whatever, I looked for 20. And it turned out in every case where I looked to, to first find 20 potential candidates, we happened to find a great candidate. So now 45% of the top management is women. So what would you say to other companies who, would, who have the same challenge? Well, they can do a couple of these things I mentioned. And they'll have to do about two more things. When the first few people show up that are outsiders, whether it's like gender, sexual orientation, race, socioeconomic, whatever, when these outsiders show up, they will have great difficulty being successful if you haven't changed and if you haven't brought on enough of a critical mass of diversity into your company. One more thing, especially for real estate, your users are at least half women. They're probably more important decision makers on the residential side and they are increasingly important on the commercial side. We noticed at Notel, like a really big driver for me was noticing at Notel, our customers are twice as likely to be women CEOs as the market at large. We're incredibly attractive to women CEOs who don't want to deal with all this bogus nonsense and we should be trying to serve them as well as we can. It means that we probably should do our best to understand them deeply. So you observe the way people work, like that's kind of mm -hmm. what you the way that companies run, the way that people want to come to work, the way that they want to be at work. Yeah. In like the next five years, how much, like what do you think is going to be the biggest change and what isn't going to change? Yeah, the isn't going to change is an awesome question. That's one of my favorite Bezos-isms. There's this great line from him, which is like, people often come to me and ask me what's going to change the most in the next 10 years. But what they never ask me is what's not going to change. Because we're all still going to have to like, work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it is a naive and uh, shallow supposition that folks have made that there's not enough work to do and that we should somehow fear the assistance of our robotic friends. Uh, there is way more work than any of us can do. There's nobody relaxing. Like Armies of robots are needed just to keep up with our ambitions. And um, we, will all, we will all certainly be working a lot in, in the years to come in the future. And we will be working together. The stuff, that we, uh, the stuff that we need help on from automation and information systems is the stuff we kind of suck at anyway, adding up long columns of numbers and getting organized and crunching them. But the creative solutions to problems, the ones that we come up with together, are going to happen in an office, <laughs> not, on, not on video chat. And um, they're, they're going to happen together. 
Thank you so much for having a drink with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Let's Have a Drink is created and produced by me, Miriam Hall. Mark Bonner is the supervising producer. It's edited by Travis Gonzalez. 